Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses Weekly Podcast with me, Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of PL. Um, very shortly, we'll get to this week's guest, but there's a couple of things I wanted to run through from the news this week in the week that was. I guess the first thing that struck me this week was there was a survey by State Street of um, its institutional clients. I think it was more than 300 clients were surveyed for it. And 81% of them, and that's right, 81% were unready for the UMR rule, for the uncleared margin rules to come in. Um, Now, I understand we've got a year to go and two years for some firms, but at some stage you start to think, when is the industry going to wake up and actually do something about this? And this could be a question I could ask our panellists this week at Forex Network Chicago. Um, I look at it and and think to myself, someone said to me um, this week, that the buy side are very far, asset managers in particular, are very fond of the banks telling them what to do. And you do sense that there's a, a mood on the buy side that this is something that their banking partners are going to solve for them. Now, they may well do that. And you know, you'd look at it and say, well, that's good service. As long as the banks are getting paid for it, because I, I think there's a, there's a growing tension in the world now where the regulation is costing the service providers more but it's also driving the clients to be keep, to be even um, pickier, if you want, for a word, for you know, for a choice of a word, over how they execute their business, and therefore how much value is left with the LP. You know, there's always been a tension between a best execution policy and an LP's need to make money on a portfolio of trades. And I want to stress on a portfolio of trades because I do not get this concept of you have to make money in every trade. You, know, you should be judged on a quarterly at minimum, probably half yearly basis as to how well the relationship is working with a client. Um, and if we look and try and make money on every trade, you're going to end up with more volatile relationships, more volatile service levels, which is no good for anybody. So I think we need to look at it and go, well, how do we achieve a balance between the client's need to get a sensible best execution policy in place that satisfies the oversight and the need of the market maker liquidity provider to actually make a living out of that flow over the course of a year. Because, you know, don't get me wrong with the advance in analytics, more and more banks in particular, and I think non-bank firms have been through this already because their analytics were advanced before the banks. They're cutting the clientele. They're looking at the numbers and this is no longer driven by the heart about, oh, he's a good guy. You know, I really like her. Um, it's nothing to do with that anymore. And it's not even driven by what the head is telling you that, oh, this is a good client. Well, actually what it's been driven by are hard numbers by a computer. And I think the more those numbers tell you, you know, we're making 20 grand a year out of this client, but it's costing me 50 grand to have you set there. Well, guess what? Um, the clientele gets cut and liquidity for the clients dries up and more importantly risk moves to the buy side and haven't we spoken about that one enough the other thing i want to talk about this week was spoofing um fairly briefly because i think everyone knows my thoughts on spoofing but it was significant because um the trial of one of the deutsche bank traders charged by the cftc over spoofing precious metals started this week in um i think it was in i think it was in chicago now I'm not going to get involved in the peculiarities of that case. The fact is spoofing to me, generally speaking, is fairly easy to spot. The question will be for the judge and jury as to exactly how criminal the action is. 
what is interesting is that the same week as that happened, the CFT chose to release um, a consent order with Edge Technologies. Now, this is Jitesh Thakkar, who's become a bit of a cool celeb for the um, for the futures industry in particular, because he um, he ran Edge Technologies, who provided the program for uh, Navinda Sario, the uh, the Hound of Hounslow, as he's known. Now. Putting aside the ridiculous notion by the U.S. government that Sereo caused the uh, flash crash, um, anyone with any knowledge of markets tell you that that's absolute nonsense. Um, they did find that the um, software firm that provided the technology was culpable and should have known what he was doing with it. Now, the facts of the case were agreed by both parties, so it's not contested that, well, guess what? Um, you knew what he was going to do because he explained it to you and therefore you are complicit in this. Now, I would say the fine amounted to $74,000. So, you know, this is not exactly big league when it comes to the, the money, the revenues that some US regulators earn from some of their fines. But it's still a precedent that's been set, which I think is interesting, that the software programmer should know exactly how their software is going to be used. This kind of shit, again, just as we're shifting risk to the buy side in, in trading, this does kind of actually shift the risk slightly away from the client and towards the service provider when it comes to people programming trading strategies. And don't get me wrong, you know, anything that you, you, you program a strategy that says, I want to be top of book, but anyone, any, anyone, anytime someone joins me, change my amount by one lot so I go to the back of the book. Um, and every time I got hit on my, if I get hit for one lot, cancel my order. This is actually, um, and not an intention to trade. And to me, spoofing is all about intention to trade. You know, if you do sit at top of book in size and you fill those orders, that's an intention to trade when you're hiding behind the book. I'm afraid that's not. So it'll be interesting to see how the, um, the Varley trial goes on. Um, obviously the U S government's got a fairly checkered history when it comes to really pinning spoofers down in, in courts of law. Um, this is just the latest example of that, but it's certainly going to be something worth watching. Um, with that, we'll take a break now and we'll be back with this week's guest. And fine enough, we're talking best execution TCA and benchmarks. Profit and loss Forex Network Chicago is going virtual this year. Join us on September 23rd and 24th for quality panel content, product demos, and live chat via our new state-of-the-art event platform. We're putting the network back in Forex Network. Register now at profit-loss-events.com slash Chicago 2020. The first panel we're looking at next week at Forex Network Chicago is actually on the evolution of the FX swaps market. It's um, mm. an area I've been looking at for quite some time, as regular listeners will know. And last week, we actually saw a very interesting development in this place when New Change FX launched their um, benchmarks for forwards. And I'm joined by CEO Andy Warmer to discuss that and also the currency beta indices that uh, were launched at the same time. Um, Andy, welcome to In the Thick of It. Thank you, Colin. Can you explain to us then, how the benchmarks are going to work and, you know, how you created them. Yep. We began the business about 10 years ago, eight years ago, I suppose. 
and um, quickly realized that there was an absence of data in spot and in forwards. And so we created our spot benchmarks by aggregating ECN data to create a mid-rate. So the philosophy for the forward benchmarks is exactly the same. Essentially, we're taking broker feeds, live broker feeds, aggregating them in real time and producing a mid-rate. So a very, very simple philosophy underlying it. Um, live feeds that can be consumed in real time by uh, anybody with the capacity to do so. And obviously, we create databases out of them, and um, they're accessible via the APIs or uh, to our TCA clients, and uh, and that's how they work. As simple as that. Right. Now, obviously, as far back as I can remember in forwards, which is probably not far as, as, uh, as it used to be, but um, there's always been issues around the turn. Um, yeah. It used to be year-end turn, then it was quarter-end and year-end. Now it seems to be monthly. So what have you done to solve the issues yeah. of the turn you know, around basis blowouts? Yeah, so um, we've created a model um, to form a, a complete curve, which is also a benchmark as well. And that interpolation model, being designed by uh, people with expertise in the forwards market, is, is there to create a completely independent value for each turn point. I mean, it, it's there for every single day. Um, and that then enables people to see the skew that is being priced to them by the institutions. And obviously, institutions have very different requirements around turns. I mean, there's all sorts of regulations. There's all sorts of balance sheet requirements. And those requirements drive specific pricing from institutions. And we needed to find a way that we were creating that turn independently so that it was a benchmark. And that then enables people to see what the cost of the liquidity uh, they're being charged for by the institution that they're approaching for a price. So effectively, they can work out, I mean, the diff- you know, they, they will take the difference in spread they're being quoted and yep. inquire of their liquidity provider, I guess. I mean, obviously, you know, GCIV requirements are a big thing particularly for the u.s yeah. banks it seems absolutely um, and it was highlighted by the bis earlier this year around what happens a month in when the bigger banks step back so effectively yeah. this is giving people the ammunition to say okay why is my price there well i mean it, it, quite possibly i mean they, they might look at it and say i'm very happy with my pricing there yeah. you know it, it, the point is that if it isn't quantified you don't know and at the moment we seem to have a situation where in, information is only given by banks uh, around the turn. And of course, the banks in Europe will price differently from the bank, banks in the States. So taking a, uh, a bigger pitch of view, if you like, and aggregating up much more data, you get an independent view of what that term would be. And then you can see what the individual pricing is and whether you're, <clears throat> excuse me, and whether you're happy with that or not. I mean, that, it, it, that's the point of a benchmark to, to, to try to ascertain where the fair value for the mid of the market is. And then from there, people can make their own decisions about, you know, wh- wh- how they're accessing liquidity and, and um, uh, just make more informed trading decisions. I would imagine the closer you get to the turn, it would get more and more interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, effectively then, this is like kind of leaning on the work. There's obviously, you know, FX swaps being a derivative of the interest rate markets. This yeah. is kind of um, strikes me as complementary to the shift in the, money markets to risk-free rates 
Yes, I think so. I mean, um, I think that we, we've tried to, we've looked at this um, uh, problem a, a number of different ways. Um, over the years, we've tried to do all sorts of, um, come to different means of arriving at the right answer. Um, and I think the FX market, whilst it's linked, it, it, you know, it's very, very, the conditions and the, and the circumstances are very specific to the FX market. So, you know, yeah. whilst there are relationships, it, you know, it is, the basis is the impossible thing to price when you're, when you're trying to do it from outside. And, and, you know, that's what we've solved. Yeah. Yeah. And then it just comes down to risk weighted assets, capital pricing, capital charges, et cetera, isn't it? Um, Absolutely, and not you know not all customers are the same, and not all banks are the same, and you know that we're we're trying to differentiate. We're trying to enable people to differentiate between their, you know, their suppliers, and you yeah. know, that's that's the 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 goal here. I guess at least understand why they're being priced differently. Yeah, absolutely, and you know it it, it becomes clear that you know certain banks have certain requirements, so yeah. you know. Do they match? I mean, is your bank axed in in a way that suits your book? I mean, you know, how do you find the one that absolutely is at the right time? I mean, you know, that's where the benchmarking is required. Yeah, yeah. I mean, something that people are talking to me about quite a lot at the moment, which is interesting to me, because a year ago I was talking to people about the benefits of algos and sort of independent TCA and spot markets, and people who were a little bit reluctant to really engage in a conversation on spot markets over the last couple of months, been talking to me about algos and benchmarking and TCA in swaps and options. Um, yeah. Is this the next stage of TCA? Yeah. Well, I mean, we would say that, you know, TCA really doesn't have much value if you're not using a benchmark data anyway. I mean, you know, the, yeah. the nature of, the nature of data, I suppose, is analogous with sort of social media. You know, your social media view of the world will be different to mine and everybody else's listening will be, you know, they'll have their own version of it. So I guess we have the thing there with, we're now enabling people to benchmark both swaps and... Um, offered by the institution. I mean, you, yeah. you, you know, you need to know what the what the benchmark is, if it's a spot price or a swap price. And when you've got a benchmark, then of course, you know, can you drive algos off things like that? Absolutely you can. I mean, that that's precisely what they should be used for. And, you know, benchmarking anything just enables you to understand what the uh, cost of the execution actually is at the point of at the point of the execution activity. I mean, you know, post-trade TCA is is very difficult when you don't have a benchmark there because the pricing is subjective and it's also i guess the question then the point you're making is very much around the real-time nature is what people need to embrace I mean, it, it, I, uh, we hear a lot about you know people talk to us a lot about uh, in-flight tca and i think that in-flight tca you know the the step is you know so the is the algorithm on track to deliver what you're expecting um the the step that is required for that is for the asset manager to demand that the uh, algo provider is benchmarking in real time using an official benchmark and you know that that then clarifies the situation that enables real time analysis or in flight analysis or whatever and you know that's the starting point for all sorts of other things mm. 
mean, I think we're going to hear a lot more about this because I, it strikes me that the buy side is finally getting interested in what's happening to their FX executions, which I guess is, strangely enough, always, in my opinion, always seems to happen when um, their performances struggle over the course of a year. I can't think why that would be. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think yeah, you might be right. I mean, it, it, well, I, I think the sensible sort of view of it is that any asset manager, you know, you're, you've got this responsibility to, to your investor's capital. Yeah. And, you know, a, a, a serious amount of money is, is being thrown away on um, overexpensive execution. I mean, we see it, you know, very commonly in um, uh, rolling of hedges for share class hedging and, and you know, the, the, the costs that people pay. I mean, you know, you, you can easily be looking at $150, $200 a million for rolling swaps. And, you know, th- that's just absurd. You know, I mean, if you're paying five, that's probably okay. And, you know, okay, 20, 25 is probably pretty average. But, you know, you, you do find these examples where people have not really taken any interest in their foreign exchange costs and they're 10 times higher than they really could be. And, you know, I think foreign exchange cost in that sort of context is largely optional. You know, you really just need to be understanding what it is and then speaking to your suppliers. There's no real need to necessarily change suppliers at that level you know you just say well look i'm not happy with this pricing uh, i'd like it tighter and you know that generally happens in our, in our experience well i think a data-driven conversation helps take a lot of the emotion out doesn't it whereas totally. I mean, you, you, yeah you need to be turning up with an armful of data and saying look this is what this looks like to us we don't like it um you know we'd like this either explain why it is this price Again, you know, there's a lot of reasons and not all clients can access the best pricing. There's a lot of reasons for that. Mm. But when you're armed with good data and that that data isn't circular, it's not coming from, you know, uh, your trading system, then um, you've you've got the ability to actually negotiate. I need to look up the quote, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. I know a politician. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I think you have to be very careful around these things. But, you know, the analysis is, you know, becomes uh, defined in a way um, that, that is clear to both sides when you're, yeah. when you're using the benchmark. That's our sort of central thesis for the business is that the benchmarks drive everything. And if you're not using a benchmark in your analysis, then you, you've got certain problems in the in the, uh, the in the in the way that people respond to to the analysis. And I think that it's very important to be able to see the wood from the trees. Yeah, yeah. So alongside, I mean, I, I guess it's work that's, that's emerged out of the ben- the work on benchmark forwards. You also launched some currency beta indices. So can you talk yeah. talk us through how they're going to you know? Um, what work was done to create them and, and how they're going to work? Yeah, well, I mean, it, Toby and I, uh, when we were run, running portfolios for SEB, we we created currency beta indices as a substitute for uh, what were generally regarded as foreign exchange betas, and they were kind of carry and trend and so on and so forth. But we couldn't ever relate um, foreign exchange manager performance to those uh, beaters, you know, so if somebody turned up in their, you know, carry strategy, um, there would be a very, very weak correlation to um, the benchmark carry strategy or the reference carry strategy, I should probably say. And as a result, we started saying, well, this is ridiculous. We know that this guy is trading 
this basket of currencies. Why don't we just build much more simple indices? So we took a short dollar long currency one month uh, view of it, created indices from that position. So it essentially just re reflecting the economic value of that transaction and created these baskets. And instantly we were able to see that you know, the managers that were able to outperform this very, very simple beta. And we found that useful in lots of different ways. And so now, obviously, having benchmarks for forwards, we're able to now create a benchmark currency beta index. So you can see the economic performance of your currency exposure over time. So it's reflecting the spot value and it's reflecting the interest rate differential over time. Revalued every day. Uh, giving you um, a, an index that, that can then drive all sorts of other conversations. So we've already started talking to one bank that would like to produce derivatives on that with a view that there should be a sort of a different trading approach. You know, you did, do you have to uh, trade your foreign exchange hedges by doing forwards? Well, well sorry, <coughs> creating forward positions and then swapping them. Well, not necessarily. I mean, you know, you, once you've got a currency beta index, you can say, well, I mean, essentially it boils down to looking like a CFD, whatever the wrapper is. Um, you, you, you're just getting the economic value of the exposure you would otherwise have and um, having that packaged in a way that suits you better. And that, that would have implications for collateral and, you know, with all the um, uh, UMR, the... the yeah. um, the margin rules, you know, that kind of becomes relevant. And I think that there's, you know, then a different way of relating to the institution and saying, well, yeah, I, 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 let's not have the, the forward lines. Let's just buy derivatives and, and have our uh, risk covered that way. And so, yeah, I think that's opening up a, an entirely new set of conversations. Which I guess then also kind of frees up the rest of the market for the funding um, element yeah. of, the, of the swaps market, isn't it? Yeah, possibly. I mean, it, you know, we, we don't really know what the implications would be at this stage because it hasn't taken flight yet. But, yeah. you know, certainly attractive to asset managers to not have to roll positions, you know, because obviously if you can just, you just take the exposure and it can just sit there for as long as it likes. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's, it's changing the way that people are thinking about it, that's for sure. And it's very interesting to get into these different conversations that, that are about, people actually how an asset manager would choose to manage their exposure i think that's healthy well it certainly seems there's i mean your know, regulation is definitely changing or it has the potential to seriously disrupt the fx swap market so it strikes me that anything that reduces the capital burden relating from fx swaps would have to have at least a good audience yeah, I mean, I think we've got to recognise that, you know, it doesn't matter what, somebody's got to trade something somewhere and the yeah. UMR rules apply to the banks and that, you know, so it, it might be initially somewhat limited um, in, in, in changing the conversation. But, you know, it, innovation is kind of important and it's very important for uh, institutions to be doing innovative things and whether that's, you know, creating algorithms to trade forwards or, you know, whatever it might be, these kind of new derivative products based on indices and so on. These are innovations that have existed for a long time in other markets. And, you know, I think foreign exchange market is a bit of catching up to do. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that. 
um, particularly when it comes to swaps, because yeah. I, think, I think I first predicted um, greater automation than change in the swaps market in 2004. And I You'll think, be right one day. Well, so I, think, I think I've done it every year <laughs> since. Yeah, so yeah. You can yeah. guarantee the one but year I, I don't predict it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that, that'll be it, yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, Andy, that's fascinating. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how it develops over the over the coming months and years, because as I say, I do think this market's ripe for disruption. And this, to me, looks like part of that disruption. But I guess we shall see. So thank you for your time today. Well, it's a pleasure, Colin. Thank you. And um, to our listeners, thank you very much. Um, next week is Freud's Network Chicago, so there won't be a podcast next week because um, I think I'm working from midnight to 4 a.m. Cue very small violins on the part of the audience. Um, so I think recording the podcast could be a bit over me. So we'll be back in two weeks' time. Um, hopefully we'll be um, engaging with many of you at Freud's Network next week. Um, in the meantime, have a good couple of weeks, and um, thanks very much for listening.